0: Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is A Tale of Two Droughts, and it was recorded on May 5th, 2014. Can everybody hear me? Anyway, uh, we have one drought that nature caused, and then we have a sort of second drought that man caused. And they're they're connected. Before I, uh, what I'd like to do today is just briefly go through why we have this drought, what's the relation to local politics, what's the relation to state politics, and what does it tell us about the status of American culture. So we can start with the San Joaquin River and we can end up with an existential philosophical debate. But um, one preliminary comment. This is new ground for all of us because record-keeping in the state of California goes back accurately to about 1870. And on those records we've had severe two-year droughts but we've never quite had a three-year drought. And more importantly, We've never had a drought with 40 million people before. So a lot of what people are forecasting is speculation. But I'd like to start with a couple of axioms that our forefathers established when they came to California. They took it for granted that people would want to come from California. Not At that time, it was gold or timber or agricultural land. Later, it became climate, weather, entertainment, Hollywood, Napa Valley, you name it. California had it all, and our forefathers anticipated that we would get up to a population of about 40 million. And therefore, they made arrangements. The arrangement was that 80% of the water in California is where people don't want to live. Only 20% of the people live in Northern California. 80% of the people live where there are only 20% of the water is. And therefore, if California was to thrive, they had to make adjustments, and those adjustments were a series of water projects. The Owens Valley Water Project to Los Angeles in 1912, the Colorado River versions roughly at the same time, the fabulous Big Creek Water Project Henry Huntington did in 1912, uh, the California Water Project of the late 50s and 60s, and the Central Valley Water Project that started as early as 30. And they were all based on transferring waters either from the Colorado when that source was exhausted from the Sierra, when that source was exhausted from Northern California, specifically the Trinity or the Feather or the Klamath, the American and Sacramento Rivers. Now, there were certain protocols that if you read this, say the preamble of the California Water Project or the Central Valley Water Project, they had purposes, aims, objectives, and they were fourfold. They were going to prevent flooding in northern California, which had been habitual. They were going to create hydroelectric. So, for example, the Big Creek Project today still produces 1,000 megawatts of electricity. When it was built, it was the largest electrical uh, generation uh, program in the world until the Hoover Dam, and it supplied half of Los Angeles' power to the 1930s. Third, it was going to provide recreation. So if anybody's been... Lake Orbell, Shasta, Trinity or even down in the middle of San Joaquin Valley, Shaver, Huntington Lakes, Pine Flat, etc. that was the third aim, recreation, power generation, flood control and agriculture, irrigation. We had about 5 million acres in the center of the San, of the state that could not be irrigated without surface water and let me just as a person who lives there my entire life, remember the map of California. They're the Sierra Nevada, and it's one of the few areas in the world, the Andes Mountains in North Africa. Chile is another one where you have such steep mountains that are snowpacked with gravity-fed irrigation into a valley that's quite fertile below. And on the western side, it's quite steep. And so what happens is the water comes off in the spring, There's clay soils along the San Joaquin Valley foothills. The water does not pool very well. It's hard to find water in places like Orange Cove or out near the foothills. And then west of the foothills, but east of the 99 Freeway, there's an aquifer. It's one of the biggest aquifers in the world. And what that means is that the water table where I live in Salma, California, is 50 feet even in the middle of drought. And that's where the San San... uh, the Santa Fe Railroad, the Southern Pacific, they needed steam power, they needed water. That's where all the communities, that's where all the population developed in the center of the state, along that aquifer, Modesto, Merced, Sacramento, Fresno, Bakersfield, et etc. But our forefathers knew that to the west of it, there were even more acres of farmland, And it was fertile farmland, but it couldn't be farmed because right around Highway 41, about 8 miles west of the 99, this aquifer goes down at about 100 feet per mile. So by the time you get out to I-5 and you see those signs, water crisis, Pelosi, Boxer, Costa, all those uh, dead orchards, the water table can range from 1,500 to 2,000 feet. Some of you say, well, so what? There's still water. Well, the problem is that if you have a 15 horsepower pump like I do, and I pump, I have it, the bowl set at 90 feet, it's pumping from 50, I can pay a dollar an hour for a 15 horsepower pump and get a thousand gallons a minute. If you're John Harris, all of you know John, if you're out on the west side and you're pumping, From 2,000 feet with a 500 horsepower, you're only getting a fifth of that water and you're paying 100 times more. And more importantly, the water is of not good quality. You may be able to use it on some row crops, but this year there are going to be thousands of acres of land taken out of production that are in the most productive of all crops, almonds, which are now $3 a pound, our greatest export earner, 900,000 acres in California. And that represents about... a $15,000 $15,000 an acre capital investment. In the past, if you were to save almond groves when drought occurred and the California Water Project cut back water, you could mix it with your well water. This year, there's no surface water to mix it with. So you cannot, the almond will not tolerate the high salt content of West Side water. So around August, as you go up and down I-5, you will start to see dead almond grows. And today, I, I drove over yesterday on Manning Avenue, you see thousands of acres being pulled out. Now, remember what our forefathers said, recreation, hydroelectric, flood control, agriculture. The fifth reason was fish replenishment. That was not part of the original the original protocol. That's something that our generation added. We would have been all right in this three-year drought cycle, as unique as it was, had not three things not occurred. A perfect storm, if you will. We had a drought. That was bad enough. We could have survived a drought, but we did three things. We grew to 40 million people. We could stop growth, as some people want to do, but if you want to go to 40 million people, you can't have a three-year grout if you stop the California Water Project on Phase 2 and the Central Valley Project in Phase 2, as we did in the 1980s. And three, if you take what little water is left and you divert it in the San Joaquin route, River for fish replenishment or you let it go down the main rivers that are tributaries the San Joaquin to replenish the Delta smelts habitat in the bay. Now, let me just elaborate a little bit on that. The California Water Project and the Central Valley Federal Project. California Water Project is largely state, Central Valley Project is largely federal. Together they transfer over 20 million acre-feet. Pine Flat Dam is a a million acre-feet. As you sometimes go where Pacheco Pass, that's two and a half million acres. Ten times that amount of water is transferred. Mostly the California water project, the state project, is going to Los Angeles. And, in fact, you'll see the canal full today. And Los Angeles, unlike other areas in agriculture, was not forced to give up their water or cease their project building. So you can go over the grapevine and see Pyramid Lake. It's full. Castle Lake Lake is full. L.A. is in great shape because they continued the phases of these water projects despite environmental lawsuits. However... Sometime in the late 70s and 80s, the United uh, United States Army Corps of Engineers and the state of California was facing massive lawsuits. Some of them were from Native American burial grounds, some of them from environmentalists, and they made a decision that given the state's population of 23 million people and given the fact they'd never have a drought more than two years, they felt they could cease all construction as envisioned by our grandfather. In other words, they didn't think we would either have a three-year drought or they didn't think um, we would have 40 million people, as we were warned that we might. And, uh, of course, nobody thought that they would divert water for fish, but they did. And the result is, the biggest project in the California Water Project was the Klamath River Project. I know some of you would lament the fact that it would be built because it would have affected salmon runs in the Klamath, but it was going to be the second largest reservoir in California, lake after Lake Tahoe, 15 million acre feet, 15 pine flat dams. In addition to that, on the American and Sacramento watershed, there was the Sacramento Stiles Project. There was San Luis No. 2, or what we call the Los Banos Grande Project, the Alpa Reservoir in the Klamath. Uh, Temperance Flat on the San Joaquin River above Millerton Lake, had they all come into existence as envisioned and as planned, right now we would have enough reservoir water for four more years without rain, about 25 million acre feet. Right now the existing, which is about half the reservoirs that were originally envisioned, are about half full thanks to the last two storms. 50% on the Kings River, and as you go down to the Cahuilla River, they're about 30%. But again, this is a third-year drought. This is a California and federal water projects that are only half done. And then we did something that nailed the coffin shut. In a series of lawsuits over the last six years, environmentalists, mostly from the Bay Area, went to court and argued two things, that a small three-inch fish in the San Francisco Delta was endangered with not enough oxygen and that was primarily because traditional river flows had not re-oxygenated because they were used for agriculture. It may or may not be true but research since has said an equal contributor to the Delta smelts problem is the 36 municipal treated waste districts in San Francisco Bay. If this was an audience of california farmers they would say basically they took our ag water because they're dumping their wastewater in the delta and they want somebody to replenish it so the fight goes back and forth the second argument was there had been 19th century accounts and early 20th century accounts that the longest river in california the san joaquin had fish in it not just fish but salmon they went from San Francisco Bay all the way up to the San Joaquin Valley Gorge. And why not bring them back? The problem with that is the evidence had been anecdotal because the way the Sierra geology works is that before these great dam projects, the San Joaquin River, the biggest river in California, even on wet years, it flooded, overwent the banks, its tributaries, and the Kings or the Tuolumne or the San Joaquin itself, it flooded, Fresno was flooded, Reedley was flooded, Tulare Lake was the greatest freshwater lake west of the, of the Great Lakes, and then it dried up. So we couldn't, people tried in the early 20th century to generate electrical power in the San Joaquin, they couldn't do it. They were flooded out in March, and there was no water by September. So think of what this means if you, if you contemplate it a little bit. Today's environmentalist is basically saying, I want a steady, constant supply of water to flow all year round so we can have all year round salmon migrations year by year. Now, I don't know if those happened in the past, but I want to return to a theoretically natural phenomenon by taking somebody's unnatural creation, which was never intended for it, and expropriating their water. That's what we're asked to do. So today's farmer and these irrigation districts, even though some of the reservoirs are down to 25%, 20% of that water is now diverted from the canals that go to irrigate almond trees and it's going down the San Joaquin River so that people in trucks, in dry spots can take salmon, Small salmon from San Francisco, they put them in the San Joaquin River. When it's too dry, they put them in a truck, and they drive a little bit and dump them out. They swim a little bit, and they dump them out, and they're trying to get back to the Sierra, even though we know that they never could quite do that without these reservoirs that the environmentalists don't like. It's a very Orwellian situation. But it brings up a larger question. That's the purpose of my talk. Why do people do these things? Why do they do them in California? I think the answer is, I don't think you came here to hear about it just a drought. You want to know why, what's the reasoning behind this? And I think the problem is to be summed up is we live in a state that is on the coast, Massachusetts, and in the center of Mississippi. They're two completely diff- diverse cultures, and they're in the same state. By that I mean the decisions, the money, the capital, the influence, the intellectual weight is on the coast. The Times Education Supplement not long ago rated 20 universities. I think five of them were in California. Caltech was rated one. Stanford, I think, was three. Berkeley and UCLA followed. USC was about 17. More universities uh, in the top 20 in California than any other nation other than the United States at large. You add in Napa Valley, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, and this is where all of the capital is. But it's also where the decisions are made about certain elemental issues where people don't go to places like Bakersfield or Elk Hills or Kalinga, and they don't understand the consequences. And let me give you some examples. While this was going on, perhaps the most brilliant of all the California water projects was Hetch Hetchy. You are here today because you're drinking Hetch Hetchy water. Hetch Hetchy was envisioned after the California earthquake and fire of 1906. They said, we we'll, can't go through this again. We don't have enough water to put the fire out. Where are we going to get it? These hills that you see around don't have it. Well, we need to go to the Sierra. John Muir's followers said, you cannot damn Hetch Hetchy. It's more beautiful than Yosemite Valley. They did. And in a brilliant effort... On gravity-fed aqueducts, they go across the Dunbarton Bridge. You go up to Crystal Springs Reservoir. We're in a drought right now, and you see that reservoir on 280, and it's filled to the brim. It's one of the few water projects in the United States that doesn't have to be chemically treated. It's so ingenious. The problem with it is, although it supplies 90% of the water for San Francisco and up to 60 or 70% for our South Bay communities, the aqueducts go right over the San Joaquin River. Right over it right over the river that has been diverted from agriculture for a fish. So everybody in the valley, which are mostly voices that remain unheard, are asking themselves, wait a minute, they want the delta smelt? They want this theoretical salmon run? They have the water going to San Francisco? They don't believe in transferring water from the mountains to grow food for people to eat? Why don't they just stop the Hetch Hetchy aqueducts and dump it into the San Joaquin River and save their fish and salmon? and then they can bathe 3 days a week with gray water in the bay area. <laughs> and here we get on to something, the ramifications of your own ideology. Modern liberalism is based on the principle that people can be exempt as if they're medieval sinners from by buying penance or psychological exemption by some abstract utopian point of view. And let me give you a few other examples. California still generates 15% of its power by hydroelectric in some years. We have the Monterey Shale Formation, even though it's in abeyance. It could represent one of the largest natural gas finds in the United States. We have a Morbund nuclear power plant, but we're still the third largest, I think, producer of oil. We could be even more with vertical and horizontal drilling, et cetera, et cetera. But we have the highest power bills, highest electricity bills in the United States. And those are largely because of state-ordered mandates on green energy. I have no objection to that. The problem I have with it is the people who made those mandates and insured those high-power bills in the same manner that they're diverting other people's water Why they assume they're going to have hetch-hetchy, pristine spring water, live here. I don't have an air conditioning or heating unit that I have ever used in the Hoover Tower. Week after week, it's 70 degrees. Yesterday, two days ago, I left the Walmart in Salma, where I farm, and it was full of Hispanic people. It got up to 96. Why would they go to Walmart all day and sit there? Because they can't afford to turn on their air conditioning because it will run up to 20 or $30 a day if they run it full time. So basically, decisions, again, are made by people who live in utopia and have capital, and the consequences of the highest power bills are, do not affect them as they affect other people in the center of the state. Let me give you another example that's analogous and we can learn from this tale of two droughts. Some of us all think that high-speed rail might be the solution. Myself, I think high-speed rail is a utopian enterprise that comes third after you've fixed your major thoroughfares like the 99, I-5, and 101, and they're all three-lane freeways. Then you can experiment by upgrading Amtrak, and once you've upgraded Amtrak, then you go to high-speed rail. But no, we don't do that in the Bay Area. In the Bay Area, we decide that we are going to have a high-speed rail project. Well, where would be the most obvious place to start it? Obviously, from Pacheco Pass to San Francisco. That's where the the corridor is, where people would use it. Did we do it there? No. We decided to start with those guys down there that we diverted their water from and pay those high-power bills so we... Are going to build it from Fresno to Corquin, so you can do what? You can go see Charles Manson about an hour quicker than you can on Amtrak. I'm, <laughs> I'm not making fun of you, anybody from Corquin. I live only 30 miles from Corquin. I'm not making fun of it, but it's not a place that is a tourist attraction. It's not a center of commerce or intellectual power, and yet the first leg of high-speed rail will go north of Fresno. And here's what's really ironic environmentalists are very upset about the environment. It will go right through some of the most beautiful, productive farmland that have protected majestic oaks that were in the original flood basin of the the Kings River, which no farmer can touch on his property and wouldn't want to touch. They're the most majestic oaks in the state, and we're going to plow them all out and destroy them so we can go 42 miles much quicker than we can on an Amtrak parallel route eight miles away. And meanwhile, the 99 freeway, which we were promised in 1968, would be three lanes and a freeway. Its most dangerous sector is absolutely parallel to high-speed rail. And all you have to do is pick up the Visalia Times or the Fresno Bee, and every day somebody is killed on this monstrous two-lane overcrowded death trap we call a freeway in California. And what do we get? We pay the highest Gasoline taxes in the nation, the highest sales taxes, the highest income taxes, and we don't have anywhere a statewide freeway system of three lanes, and we're experimenting on high-speed rail, but not in the place where people want it, but in the place where people don't want it. We could go on and on. I think you understand that the same question applies to illegal immigration. I don't want to get into that. Quagmire. I will just say, though, that it reflects the same themes that I brought up. That many of the people who advocated for open borders or lax enforcement of the immigration laws um, do not put their kids in schools like Redwood High School, Redwood City High School, or they do not go to Salma High School or Sanger High School or Fowler High School. What do I mean by that? Forty five percent of the school populations. uh, Language is not English. What we need, if you believe in open borders, we need Bay Area people to put their kids in the public schools and integrate, assimilate, intermarry. That's how America's built. So if you believe that, the consequences of your own ideology are clear. Instead of what we have, I see people's faces. they're getting a little upset. But uh, what we have is something analogous to 1965 in the South when we integrated the schools, We had Christian academies. Today we don't have Christian academies. We have expansions of Harker or Menlo School, or Sacred Heart or Castille. But the idea is the same: that people are taking their children out of the public schools because they're worried about the changing demography of a system that they pretty much approve of. Just like they approve of stopping agricultural deliveries for fish. Just like they approve of mandates on solar wind power that increase electricity just as they believe in high-speed rail just that there is exempt from all of those consequences in this cocoon we call coastal california or the massachusetts corridor of california where does all this lead well i think it's if we can go from the drought to the state and finish with a national level i suggest to you that modern elite liberalism is not an ideology I don't believe it is. I don't think it is consistent. I don't think it's systematic. I don't think it's logical. To me, it's a fetish. It's a badge. It's sort of like joining the Masonic Lodge in small-town America in the 1920s. It's something one does to get insurance from a gaffe, a slip. But nobody expects a very wealthy liberal person to live by the ideology that they profess for others. If it's Elizabeth Warren and she really believes in multiculturalism and the evils of the 1%, We don't expect her not to lie about a false Native American identity to get advantage or to be in the .001%. If we feel that the Steyer brothers are really great environmentalists, we really don't expect them not to have made money in part from coal development in Indonesia. If we believe that Al Gore is really, really, really a green warrior who's working on our behalf, we really don't expect that he won't at one time have had the highest carbon imprint of any individual residence in the state of Tennessee. Or, if he believes in big government and its utility to create a green environment, we don't expect that he will not rush a sale of a bankrupt cable current TV station to beat the capital gains increase and sell it to Al Jazeera, which is a homophobic, misogynist, and anti-Semitic franchise who wants a avenue into the American media market and the money from it and where will the money come from? From Al Jazeera, it will come from the sheikdom of Qatar who made its money on what? Carbon, filthy petrodollars. And Al Gore made somewhere his cut was of the hundred million dollars, somewhere around twelve million dollars. We don't, we believe that the NAACP is on the forefront of racism, then we do not believe that they would not give Donald Sterling a lifetime achievement war not once but twice and more importantly they would not make their person of the year homophobic, anti-semitic, tax delinquent, FBI informant and riot provocateur Al Sharpton. So what I'm saying is, is that to understand this, this intensification of the drought we look at the California politics And from the California politics, we've learned that this is not a liberal ideology of Harry Truman or the 1930s, the early FDR, trying to get a 40-hour week or an eight-hour workday or overtime or disability insurance. This is something quite different, where a bunch of very, very wealthy, affluent, well-connected people have all sorts of ideas about the environment, about water, about natural fauna, about development, about the public school system about race, about immigration, and they will pursue it at everybody's expense on one caveat, that they are completely exempt from it, and they see it more as a badge or an insurance policy that is very valuable career-wise. What, what's the significance of all this? I think that rather than be upset about it, we can't, we should start not to take it seriously. In other words, that In this next midterm election and the presidential election to follow, you're going to hear all of these wars about against women, about gays, all these are not serious positions. The people who embrace them are not serious. These are psychological mechanisms, how they deal with their own privilege and the guilt about their own privilege, and they manufacture these utopian schemes that we're supposed to take serious. And I talked, I ceased to take them serious a long time ago, and I wish all of you would as well. Thank you. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution, thanks for listening. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.